another sunny day and plenty happening on your radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. If we had had help with funeral and people telling us, you know, just sit and look and think about it, we wouldn't have buried Alan Hall with Claude and her children. When I was younger, I started working professionally when I was 11 and I used to just show up for able-bodied auditions and I would not tell them that I was in a wheelchair and I would sit there and I would look at the shock on their faces and I would see if they had the guts to turn me away. It kind of reduces my appetite whereby um, I wouldn't necessarily have the same portion I used to have before I was on Ozempic. And we'll start in the morning on Today with Claire Byrne, the family of Clodagh, who along with her three children were victims of familicide, spoke about the new report into familicide and domestic violence. In late August 2016, the country was horrified to learn of the violent death of Cavan woman Clodagh and her three sons, Liam, Niall and Ryan. On the eve of returning to school, they were murdered in their home by Clodagh's husband and the boy's father, Alan Hall someone they loved and trusted. He then took his own life. Well, in the aftermath and dealing with that terrible burden of shock and grief, Clodagh's family wanted answers and looked for changes in the law and how cases of familicide are investigated. Their calls led to the Familicide and Domestic Family Violence Death Review, which was established in 2019, and that report was published this week. Now, yesterday I spoke to Clodagh's sister, Jacqueline Connolly, and to Clodagh's mother, Mary Call. Jacqueline began by telling me how the report being published was something they had looked forward to, but it was also a bittersweet moment for her and her family. Yeah, it certainly is. I suppose I felt apprehensive in the lead up today, to today, knowing that it was going to be public again. And I suppose in the last four years, things have been very quiet as the study has taken place in the background. But we're very happy with the recommendations it's brought today. And it's, it is a lot to take, to take in. It's a very lengthy report. And in particular, we're very happy to be involved in the family consultation group for the next steps and key actions as a co-design approach. And how do you how do you prepare yourself for dealing with this all again? As you say, in public, it has been very quiet over the last number of years, but now it's back out in the forefront again and you have to deal with people talking about what happened to you and your family in a very public way. It is very difficult, but I suppose mum and I deal with it daily. It doesn't go away for us, but in particular, I have to think of my son and I suppose when the study was first sanctioned, he was five, and so he wasn't really exposed to listening to media reports. And he was at an age where he couldn't read anything. He can read everything now. And so I had a conversation with him last night with regards to the study and explained to him that it was a positive thing. And I told him that Granny and I were looking for changes in the law to help other families who lose loved ones the way we have lost Claude, Liam, Niall and Ryan. And I told him to protect him in case anything is said to him about it. So he thinks we're very cool now, I yeah. think. <laughs> it's just a very, a very difficult conversation to have to have and one that no parent yeah. would want to have. And Mary, the report it stemmed from, all of it stemmed from discussions you had with the then Justice Minister Charlie Flanagan. That was back in 2019. It's been a long road for you, hasn't it? It has indeed, Claire. But, you know, we've had great support from very many good friends and our community have been very supportive. Um, it's important that we remember Claudette and her three boys, that they're not forgotten. 
and it comforts me when people visit the graves as it shows that, that they are remembered. And the children's friends visit the graves, which is very important to me too. So we've had support always in the background. Mm-hmm. And with this report... And it helps. I'm sure it does. But with this report, I know what you want really is is change yeah. and you want a suitable legacy. And I'll talk to Jacqueline about this too. But this is about hoping that things will be easier for the poor families who we know will, will experience this down the line. Absolutely, Claire. We're hoping that changes will come about with all these recommendations. And I'm hopeful that they will. And that when other families are faced with what we're facing that it won't be as difficult for them, that they'll have all the supports in place. Um, I would want a rapid response unit with all the frontline responders trained and qualified and to deal with victims and families in general. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But Jacqueline, I mentioned legacy here and it hasn't been easy for for you and for Mary to push this through and to create the environment where this report was followed through on. And we we see, you know, how lengthy and how detailed it is. And that's a, a testament to what you both did. Do you feel it's a suitable legacy now or that it could be if the recommendations are followed for Clodagh, for Liam, Niall and for Ryan? Well, we're very sensitive um, to the fact that affected families other than ourselves were involved in this study. Um, I suppose, however, the study was initially sanctioned following our meeting with the then Minister for Justice, Charlie Flanagan, which we're very thankful for. Uh, but from the outset, we've always requested that the changes in protocols would be possibly named after Claude and the boys in some way. And we're hoping that the Family Consultation Group will give us that platform for that to happen. I suppose we would like to see Claude and the boys having a legacy other than that of their murders. Of course. You mentioned um, the collaboration between the families, which we know in this report, the recommendation is that that will continue. Do you think that that's going to be central now, Jacqueline, to what's going to happen next? Um, absolutely. I mean, there's a call for a national database now and it's it's key for reforming the policy in line with international best practice. And it's important that we're involved in the next steps in bringing multi-agencies together in amalgamating their policies and creating new ones. And Claire asked Jacqueline about succession and financial issues after familicide. One of the most distressing things, and I, I know this from our previous conversations, and you're still dealing with this, detangling the financial and succession issues around Clodagh's death. Now, the review recommends that legislation should be amended, and that'll be in line, they say, with the Law Reform Commission's recommendations. How big a priority do you think this needs to be, Jacqueline, for the Minister for Justice? Well, in particular, the law of succession is archaic and it's unfair, it's unjust and it's not on the victim's side. It won't change the fact that we've spent the last six and a half years facing challenges for justice in relation to Claude's estate and that's still ongoing. But sadly, in cases like this, will happen again and unfortunately the way the law stands now means that the perpetrator died and essentially inherited everything. So we're left in legal limbo and the law of succession now really pertains to cases where the perpetrator is convicted. So the law needs to change immediately to reflect murder-suicide in the first instance 
And although it would be great for that to affect us in retrospect, it's not going to happen. But it will protect other families from going through the challenges that we're still facing. Mm -hmm. And in line with that, we would like to see that limitations be put on how long it takes for a probate to be settled. And the irony is, just to explain to people who mightn't be aware of this, if the perpetrator were still alive, he would have no role to play in how anything would be left or what would happen to to anything that was left. Yeah, that's correct. So... Moving on then, um, Jacqueline, to another recommendation, and we've touched on this, this national database. This will be established with the the CSO, the Central Statistics Office, to report on domestic and family uh, violence and and deaths. And that will be put in the public domain. Mm -hmm. What do you think would be the value of that? What needs to be gathered in terms of the information? Well, I think that the national database will educate people whereby... um, the finer details and circumstances around domestic violence deaths will, will be put and context be put around them. It'll involve better training for those who encounter victims and then the practical implications of, let's say, the cleaning of a murder scene, funeral costs, legal aid boards. These are all resources that we weren't aware of at the time and um, were available to us at all. So I think that's important. And in line with that, researchers can ed- be educated Furthermore, in order to be able to improve policies and procedures continuously and regularly. And Claire asked about the aftermath of such an horrific event. The brass tacks of this, just listening to you there and having spoken to you both in the past. Jacqueline, it's about when something like this happens to you, that the state puts its arms around you and says, we are going to take care of you. Isn't that it? Isn't that what you want? Oh, completely. Absolutely. Um, I don't think anybody is ever prepared for a situation like this and you're in complete shock. You're not thinking straight at all and you're not thinking of the practicalities. So you need somebody with the mindset of that where they're trained, they're not emotionally involved and they can say, this is what you need to do, A, B and C. And they take over because you're in cases like ours, you're very aware as well about media attention and what that's bringing and you nearly go into hiding um, so you're not thinking straight at all. Because mm, you, you would have no experience of dealing with the media, the coroner, the court system, the Gardaí. Did you see anything in the report that if the recommendations were to be followed through, it just might make it easier for families? Yeah, definitely. We welcome the recommendations around media reporting in particular. It really highlights, I suppose, journalism practice and the accountability with enhanced regulation around reporting. Um, and it also goes on to identify the use of social media platforms, so whereby somebody like myself would eulogise their loved ones on platforms like Facebook, that people are protected by GDPR protection, the where photographs aren't used, your quotes aren't used, they're not in the paper the next day. Um, as you know, Claire, it wasn't until after the burials that we took note of what was being said in the papers or on social media. And it's very difficult to read to read criticism around, for instance, the fact that we buried Alan Hall with Claude and the boys. And I suppose we hope that the recommendations will impact on the, and be actioned on journalists' behaviour around intrusion. Um, another instance would be the fact that we had journalists hiding in trees and photographing us while we were at the cemetery. So that's a key recommendation within the report that we would really welcome to be actioned immediately. Again, it's all about protecting people who are victims and are in your situation. 
Absolutely, yeah, because you're just so vulnerable and you're in shock and you're not thinking. So it's very important that that protection is put in place for you without you having to think about it. Mary, one of the themes of the report that I, I, I saw was just how important training and education is in these cases. So fact sheets for families, for example, teaching about gaslighting in the junior cycle curriculum and then further training, as we've been talking about, for everyone involved in working in this area, Gardaí and, and other stakeholders. For you, how important is all of that? Well, that is very important and that's what we wanted from the start, that people dealing with victims are fully trained, independent people who can advise and and say, like, for instance, for the funeral, that somebody could come in and say to us, look, think about the funeral, there's no rush, take your time. And then you're not doing it when you're in a complete state of shock and doing the wrong thing in hindsight. I just mean that if we had had help with funeral and people telling us, you know, just sit and look and think about it, we wouldn't have buried Alan Hall with Claude and her children. So then we wouldn't have had the whole exhumation thing to deal with. Mm-hmm. And I know you'd Which like. It was very traumatic too. You, you want to see the laws, Mary, don't you, around exhumation yeah. change? Yeah, we do. Mm-hmm. And Claire asked Mary about the Garda Serious Case Review. Now, there yeah. is there is another report, Mary. This is the Garda Serious Case Review. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know when you're expecting to see that, but, but what are you hoping to come from that report? Well, the serious case review stemmed from the fact that we had so many unanswered questions, which was highlighted on our interview, interview with you, Claire. Yeah. So when the report is published, hopefully now in two months or so, we will be seeking changes. We will be seeking for a, a second inquest. And we hope that Garda Commissioner Drew Harris will recommend a second inquest. And Jacqueline, you agree with that. That's what you're hoping for too from that review. Yeah, absolutely. I think the findings from the first inquest were not reflective of what really happened. And so that needs to be changed. Uh, we would really welcome the Commissioner Drew Harris to to recommend a second inquest. Mm-hmm. The language around all of this and the reporting, which we were talking about a little earlier, but the review attempted to tease all of that out. And I know... At the time, you were particularly upset, Jacqueline, by the use of the pillar of the community phrase and the narrative that was attached to Alan Hall in the, in the immediate aftermath of Clodagh yeah. and the boys' deaths. Mm, yeah, that's right. I suppose it gives that, that statement gives rise to a belief that he was reliable, he was stable, he was thinking normally, rationally. And that wasn't the case at all. And I think there needs to be a broader context put on what perpetrators are like. And I think that's where the education piece will be really important, whereby we don't label somebody as being perfect and then when they murder their family, that they're put on a pedestal and he was this, that and the other. Um, And he was very well respected and that people will be able to see then what murderers are really like and how they... 
um, perpetrate on their families. And Mary, I was reading back over an interview that you both did with the Anglo-Celt last August. So this was the around the fifth anniversary. And the piece was saying that the house is as it was left on the day, the family car is still sitting outside. Have you been back, Mary, to the house? And is it still sitting there just like it was last August and all of the August since 2016? Yes, Claire. Uh, no, to answer your question, I have never been back. I don't even look down that road. But yes, it is sitting there as was. The cars are still there. It's because of probit and how lengthy it, it is. Mm-hmm. So we just, we cannot do anything. Which means that eventually we're going to have to deal with the house. We're going to have to deal with the contents, all the children's stuff, all clothes stuff. And everything has been dragged out and taken a long, long time. And it's just, it, it, that is very traumatic. As you say, it's trauma on top of trauma. And you think, when is this ever going to end? Mary Call, Clodagh's mother, and Jacqueline Connolly, Clodagh's sister, from today with Claire Byrne. And in the morning, rising star, the instantly likeable and impressive 16-year-old actor Neve Moriarty. Now, one of the big telly shows uh, most anticipated this year is called Best Interests and it is starring Sharon Horgan, who's doing a very serious role opposite Michael Sheen. Uh, and it's also starring one of our rising stars, but she's been around for uh, long enough. She's across me this morning, 16 years of age. Neve Moriarty, good morning to you. Hello, thank you for having me. Uh, thank you very much for coming into us this morning. And um, the it's a, is this? Are you into summer holidays now from school or when? Yes, I finished school yesterday. Oh, yesterday. So, yeah. <laughs> so we're like. So quite a jump into the summer. When you heard it come into the radio station in the in the morning, it's like. Ah. Was hoping for a bit more of a lion. But, <laughs> you know, I'll take it. I guess. Sorry about that, but you are an actor. <laughs> yes. And uh, when it comes to the end of this, you 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 maybe give me some tips on how to become a theatrical lovey oh, and, and so on. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying my best. I'm only my my first stint. Uh, but come here to tell us about yourself. So you're from Dublin. I'm from Dublin. I'm from Kalini, the lovely Kalini, halfway between the mountains and the sea. Yeah. The Irish um, name, I think it means nearly Wicklow. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> that's, that's the bogger version. Sorry, I, I, I interrupt you. Yes. So I have a form of cerebral palsy called spastic diplegia and it affects my legs. So I'm a wheelchair user mm-hmm. and I am a performing artist. I act and that's what I've done for a few years now I've been acting professionally since I was 11 so it's been it's been a fair while and this year is a big year for me with best interest coming out <laughs> it's, it's a big big thing um how did it all start for you then Niamh? it started a very long time ago for me um so this whole process actually started back in the first lockdown in 2020. Mm-hmm. So I was 13. I had just finished my run as Tiny Tim in Jack Thorne's version of A Christmas Carol in The Gate. So I had already fallen in love with his style of writing and his storytelling. And That was I... amazing, by the way. And I saw you <laughs> as Tiny Tim <laughs> Thank in, you. in The Gate. There was something about that version, wasn't there? there was... Yes. It was quite um, a dark retelling of the story. Mm-hmm. And I have to admit, it was quite fun to play that. And it was also quite fun to subvert people's expectations because they go in and they'd be like, oh, it's such a jolly Christmas show and we'd be having them bawling by the end of the show. (laughs) So (laughs) that was really enjoyable. I love your sense of kind of menacing mischief there. (laughs) 
manipulating audiences. <laughs> sure, that's what the fun is. Okay, <laughs> And so I was on holiday in Kerry with my family and I got the self-tape request in and I saw that it was Jack and I was like, oh, all right. So we dismantled our hotel room and I filmed a tape there. Wow, and we should say that because Jack Thorne, he's, he directed uh, and was involved in dark, his Dark Materials, a yes, huge HBO yes, show. Yes, he's a genius. Yeah. And what else has he done? Incredible. He's huge things. Help with um, Jodie Comer and, oh God, for the life of me, I'm terrible at names. But, you know. Um, That's what a lovey <laughs> is, you know, whoever that was. But uh, where were you on holidays, by the way? Uh, Kerry. Oh, sorry, you said Kerry already. Yeah. So, um, Couldn't uh, tell you where. Yeah, Geography's yeah. not my, my strong suit. <laughs> oh, very good. And uh, so you get this big call and he obviously loves you and uh, <laughs> it worked at the, the gate and so on. And so the all the furniture has to be moved for you to do... Yes, we dismantled it and I had just had a facial done so I was covered in oil and, you know, all that jazz and I was like, all oh, right, better do this. So filmed that and from there then Zoom call back and Zoom call back and then... Radio silence for about nine months because COVID put everything oh, in the industry on hold. So I was like, ah, well, okay, didn't get the part. It was a gorgeous story, but like, I can't wait to see what they do with it. Um, and then one day I was sat on my couch, as per usual, and we got an email in and they had asked me to retape one of the original scenes and if I had grown too much. And I'm sure you probably tell, I'm a very short individual. <laughs> so I didn't really grow at all between that time and so I sent all of that in and then from there I did one more callback and from there I got the part That's kind of the loveliest experience isn't it where you think it's gone you have to yeah. sort of rejection and then haha It was really really enjoyable and it's been with me now for a while so I'm 16 and mm. I first auditioned when I was 13 so the project has kind of been in my heart for a really long time And Oliver asked Neve about her first day on set with Sharon Horgan and Michael Sheen We were lucky enough on this particular production to have time for rehearsals. You don't always get that when you're working on screen, but the production made sure that we all had time to meet each other. So we had about a week of rehearsals before we started filming, and that's where I met them all, and we sort of started to bond as a family, and we all got on very well very quickly, so it was just incredible to work with them. And was there sort of an overwhelming feel? Because it's a, hu- it's a this is a big, big production, isn't it? It's it a- is, yes, yeah. it is. And uh, like when I mean a big production, you've got all the stars in what they call the trailers. <laughs> yes. And yeah. um, you had your own trailer. I did. I did. Um, so we filmed on location and in studio. And that meant that sometimes I would have a trailer and sometimes I would have a dressing room. And at the time that we were filming the show, the trailer that I used on location was the only wheelchair accessible trailer in the UK. Yeah. So the production had to work quite hard to get that for me because obviously there is lots of different disabled actors and they need it too. Um, thankfully, thanks to the brilliant work of Jack Thorne and what's called the TV Access Project, which is happening over in the UK at the moment, that's all starting to change. So I would love to be able to bring some of that to Ireland. That's fantastic. And Jack Thorne has been kind of a driving force behind this, yes, hasn't he? Yes, he is, yeah. It's just really incredible to watch him work. What he does for... Disability rights and advocacy is just incredible. Why is it so important uh, for you um, that we have, you know, wheelchair user characters being played by wheelchair users? Or is it just more about the representation of? of I think what's important about on-screen representation is that stories are meant to be something that people can see themselves reflected in. And when I was growing up, I never had that. I never really saw people in wheelchairs on screen. And what I find really important is that 
you be able to find yourself in stories because it's an escape for people and it's meant to represent reality and there's all different types of people in the world so if we don't show that then we're not being true and so I would like to just make sure that people can feel seen. You couldn't put it more powerfully than that. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, while you're filming, you're obviously it's school, during school time. Yes, well. so, I so actually how does that work? I was filming during my junior cert year. Oh right. Yes, <laughs> eventful indeed. Um, that must be very difficult because I can't sense any maturity or anything. Uh, come, come. <laughs> um, so the way that it worked is I had a really brilliant tutor while we were filming. Mm. My mum and I moved over to London for three months. And so that's where I spent my time. And whilst you're filming, you have to be tutored. That's the law. Whether you like it or not. Uh, <laughs> Otherwise, you're a truant. Yeah. So <laughs> I had a really brilliant tutor and we got on very well. And we sort of just clicked and we understood my ways of learning and how things would work. So we worked really hard over there on that. And I got all my material covered. And we would visit museums sometimes and go on really brilliant trips. And I have the best memories with her. So then I came home and a week and a half later, I sat my junior cert. Wow. Wake up call. (laughs) (laughs) And Neve spoke about her love of acting. What is there about that, particularly screen acting, that you just seem to realise this is your life? Yes. I, like myself, also love theatre. I fell in love with theatre first. I was listening to you earlier. I was like, hmm, (laughs) I relate to that. Um, And the way that it really happened for me is I didn't even know it was a career. Yeah. And then I found out through auditioning for the first time and I was like, wow, this is incredible. Ever since I was a child, I've loved to talk, as I'm sure you can tell. And <laughs> I believe I, the family described it as chatty. Yes. Which is a lovely chatty. Irish way of saying someone who really just <laughs> loves talking. <laughs> in case you couldn't tell. And I fell in love with storytelling. It's kind of, I've always loved stories Ever since I was little, I love getting lost in books. I love watching TV. I love pretending that what I see on television is real and just completely living in it. So I'm not so sure I fell in love with the industry at first, but I fell in love with the idea of storytelling. And then from there, I found out that I could do it for other people and represent them through that. So I was like, well, this is something that I could really make a difference with. And I also love it really dearly. So I decided to stick with it. And here I am. And it's worked out very well. It, you're having this amazing success and it's even before we get the, to this big show and I want you to actually describe the show in a minute. Before I ask that, uh, do you fear or feel in any way that you could be limited, um, you, you know, being a wheelchair user in, mm. a, in an acting world? Well, there is definitely limits as to what is available for me to do and that is something that's challenging because the roles don't exist yet. Mm-hmm. I've been fortunate enough to sort of watch the shift happen. When I was younger... I started working professionally when I was 11 and I used to just show up for able-bodied auditions and I would not tell them that I was in a wheelchair and I would sit there and I would look at the shock on their faces and I would see if they had the guts to turn me away. And they never did. And so I would go in and I would usually do quite well and, you know, it would open their minds a bit. And if that was all I got out of it, then I was happy with that. But now it's starting to shift and I'm starting to get more auditions for written disabled characters, which has been really lovely to see. But... It is definitely challenging because I think people have a very limited view as to what you can be capable of. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because obviously one thing is going to lead to the to the other, isn't that the idea of the Hopefully. representation? And I love the fact that you did that kind of, uh, I won't call it a trick, but it was to force um, the casting direction and so on to, to judge you on your talent. Yeah. I think often people get scared when you sort of face them with disability. Mm. It's not really something that people talk about a lot, but... 
people don't often know what to do with you. They're like, can I touch you? Can I not touch you? Like, what are you comfortable with? Can I help you with anything? And I'm like, if I need any help with anything, I'll let you know. And I'm really appreciative that you're so open to this conversation. But I'd like to get rid of the anxiety surrounding it because we are just people in wheelchairs. I think sometimes people just see the wheelchair and close that off. But I'm just a person who sits in a wheelchair. Um, So that was really... I really enjoyed that experience when I was younger. So just talk to the person. Yeah. And uh, find you out. Learn for yourself. You learn a lot. You learn a lot. If you say that. Um, uh, best interest is called, it's going to come out on BBC One. Tell us what the, the show is about and what are these best interests? Yes. So best interests is the story of a family torn apart by having to make a decision that no family should really ever have to make. My parents, played by Sharon Horgan and Michael Sheen, have to decide whether their daughter, Marnie, played by myself, should live or die. So my character, Marnie, was born with a very severe form of atypical muscular dystrophy, and her doctors believe that she should be placed on supportive care only. But out of love, her family disagree, and so they enter what is called a best interest battle. Mm -hmm. And we see them go through the stages of that and the emotional toll that it takes on the family. And it's not based on a real life case. It's kind no, of it's not at all. Bits of kind of many cases that might have, might have happened over there or across. No, the it's actually not specifically based on any case. We were very careful to do that. Mm-hmm. I think it would be wrong to try and represent anyone's experience because the type of case that it is is very emotionally rough and difficult to go through. So myself and the production team have been very careful in how we go about it so as not to wrongly represent anyone. And so the story itself is not based on anyone else's experience. Impressive. That's Neve Moriarty talking to Oliver Callan in the morning. And on Morning Ireland, bringing the sunshine, Evelyn Cusack was hanging up her mic and retiring from Met Erin. It's actually looking sunny and it's not often we can say that at Met Erin. But not only will it be sunny for this weekend, it's looking good for all of next week as well. So good news. Today is the first day of summer officially. So first of June. And how long is all this going to last? Uh, well, for next week anyway, I'm not, you're not going to push me anymore now. Oh, I, I know you're, har- you're hard interviewers here <laughs> in Morning Ireland, but I'm not following you. Answer the question. Are we going to have a good summer or not? <laughs> What's it, do, do you know what it's looking like for the rest of the summer? We don't forecast uh, for the summer, Gavin. Okay. We, we, we've had a lot of we've had a lot of relatively good summers recently. Do you think that that's what's in store for us over the next few years uh, or, or into the future? Well, actually, just today we're launching, uh, we've launched on our website a new summer centre. So hopefully that's an optimistic sign. Uh, look, it's, it's all to play for. Our modelling indicates that uh, summers will be getting drier, uh, which is sort of bad news in one sense because it could lead to more droughts. Yes. Um, so <clears throat> it's, you know, it's, uh, it's all to play for at this stage. It's certainly a possibility. You're retiring. I am today. Today's the, my last day, yes. Yeah. So thank you for having me in. I appreciate it. I was, we've actually never met before. No. And, and the only prospect that we would have ever had you in studio before, I know this is your first time in our new studios, uh, was when there was natural disasters, uh, of which we've had quite a few weather emergencies in recent years. That's right. And Mary there has put me through my paces, through many a storm. So, uh, and you mine. And, um, so yeah I, I, I tend to be wheeled out during the, the bad weather so it's great to be here on a lovely sunny weekend 
Tell me about some of your memories of your time at the Met Office. You've been there since the early 1980s, isn't that right? Uh, I joined, you joined Met Erin, you know, uh, I joined in September 1981. So I've been forecasting or trying to forecast since 1982. So look, it's all a bit of a blur at this stage, but uh, my most immediate memories, I suppose, are the last five years when I, I moved to my present role. And it started off with a bang, really, with Hurricane Ophelia on the 16th of October in, what, 2017. Um, and, you know, and that was the first time we, we issued a status read for the whole country. And in fact, Ireland closed down that day and there was sort of uproar from the shops and everything. But little did we know what was to come, you know, with COVID. Course, so yes. th- that was, our, that was the, really, uh, as the late Queen said, that was the beginning of my Annus Horribilis in weather terms because it started off with Ophelia. Then we moved into February and we had the beast from the east meets Emma uh, on the 1st of March 2018 and said, OK, that's grand now, Evelyn, we'll, we'll all calm down. And in fact, it was followed by a beautiful summer <clears throat> in 2018. And unbelievably, we all met Sean Hogan and all the lads. We all met in the NECG because there was a drought and there was a lot of fires, gorse fires. And we were literally afraid Bray was going to burn down. So that's, we love this, we love fine weather, but that was a consequence. So that was a, that's grand now. We're, we're, we're settling in. And then we went to the ploughing championships in 2018. And I was there the first day and met her and we had issued status yellow warnings for wind, which, you know, they're bad, but they're not sort of crazy. But then I looked around at the thousands and thousands of tents. And I was thinking, oh, my gosh, 80 kilometre per hour or 100 kilometre per hour winds and a tented village. So I had to call uh, Mrs. McHugh and like we had some very strong words. I had to stay overnight in Tullamore. And then uh, at 6am I was collected to give a big briefing. I mean, it was very stressful really because it was flat, calm. And they were saying, you've closed down the ploughing, where's the wind? But thankfully, from my point of view, it whipped up and, you know, a lot of things were flattened. And, you know, if they hadn't made that decision, it would have been very serious. So, you know, fair juice. As a forecaster, you know, you want you want your forecast to work out. So you want the bad weather. But then, of course, you want the citizens to be safe and you don't want anyone injured. Do so it's, get, it's sort of a... I mean, you're a very familiar face, very familiar voice. Well, 30 years. <laughs> on a subject that, that, that people are, are very interested in yes. and sometimes even obsessed with, do they get annoyed with you when they accuse you of getting it wrong? But we don't get it wrong, Gavin. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, well, you know, the last thing we want to do is sort of cry wolf, you know, and that's the whole thing about naming storms. It's been very successful, but I'll throw this back at you. I mean, you guys go crazy the few days before we name storms because, uh, you know, like we appreciate the, the media spreading the word because we want to get our mess our messaging out. We want to get our safety messaging. But, you know, it's a forecast. It's very hard to predict impacts. So, you know, if we name the storm for four days ahead, like it's a media, it literally is a media storm and then everybody is expecting Armageddon and thankfully not every part of Ireland tends to get hit, you know. So it, from that point of view, say, what are you on about? Sure, it was grand today. It was only a bit windy. So I feel like saying, oh, I'm sorry, you know, your house wasn't blown down. But, you know, that's somebody saying that now. So um, what's next? Uh, life after the weather, Evelyn, what, what are you going um, to do? 
Well, life after the weather. Well, I'll always have the weather with me, literally on the phone, because as uh, Met Aaron's app and website is the number one weather app and website in Ireland. And we've just launched new products today, as I said, a new um, summer centre, a new surfing forecast and mountaineering and, and hill walking. So I hope to do a lot of hill walking. I mean, Ireland is such a beautiful place. Uh, but look, it's sunny. I want everyone to have a lovely weekend. Enjoy Bloom. But on a serious note, uh, Ireland has one of the highest skin cancer rates. And really, it should be part of our drill. And especially for children, slap on factor 50 and a hat. Forget this factor 15. So on that cautionary note, I'll just say enjoy the summer. But please, please don't burn. Well, there she goes. Evelyn Cusack with Gavin Jennings on Morning Ireland. And on today with Claire Byrne, those price hikes on fuel. Now, filling stations across the country were busier than usual yesterday as motorists filled up their tanks before fuel increases came into effect at midnight following the reintroduction of government excise duties. The price hikes saw petrol rise by six cent per litre, diesel by five cent and agricultural diesel by one cent. The temporary reduction in fuel prices was introduced in March of last year to help combat the rising cost of living. Well, Evelyn O'Rourke spoke to motorists at Houston Station to hear what they thought about the changes. don't like it. I can't see what good it's doing to the country anyway. We're paying way over the top the way it is. I don't think the powers of B gives a damn about the working person at all out there. We're sitting ducks here. If you're from rural Ireland, you're in big trouble because people are commuting up from parts of the country maybe from five o'clock in the morning to try and get to work here in Dublin and they're going to have more expenses. I think it's very unfair. If the price of fuel goes up, it'll have a knock-on effect on everything else. You think there's an anti-car agenda now? Of course there is. A green agenda. Everybody up on their bicycle. You have a diesel car. How much does it cost to fill your car? Let's say about 50 something euros a week, yeah. This is going up for you now? Yeah, it's going up. I think it's so ridiculous. It's very hard nowadays, you know. Things are hard enough for people without this now. The fact that it had come down as well, I suppose it was a nice boost for people. It's gone so high, haven't it? It's gone so high, but now it's going to hit people, like definitely. You got a text to remind you? Yes, I did. My mother reminded me that the, the price is going up at midnight to make sure to top up myself, yeah. Does it feel like everything's just expensive now? Yeah, like I'm a teacher. Living in Dublin is hard enough. It does feel right now that, yeah, everything is going up and in the city it's just harder to, to live here, definitely. How much would it cost you to fill the car? About 68 euro, yeah. I'm from Kerry, so I tend to go home very often, so my tank used to go very far. Now it's not going to go as far as it used to. Oh, hello. <laughs> so you're the mammy who got in touch with her to tell her to fill up the car before the price went up. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I think you're a lovely mammy to do that. <laughs> what do you think of the price? Terrible altogether. I'm going up again. Terrible, the price of it. Too expensive, the diesel and petrol. So you, you chose to come up with the train on purpose? Yeah, and counted that, yeah. So it cost you a fortune to drive up? It would, yeah. So you took the train up instead? Yes, yeah, that's it, yeah. It's very high. The yeah. price is very high. How much for you to fill a tank in the uh, new price? About seven, eight euro every day. More expensive? More expensive every day. What do you think about it? Yeah. The price till 147, 152. So it's all adding to your bills? Yeah. I'm not happy with that anyway. But what can I do? I have a family, I have kids. I need to work every day, you know. It doesn't bother me anymore. I have an electric car. You do not. Uh, yeah. You don't care. I know. And yeah. you can do all the jobs, all this. Two days for one charge. I don't have to work as much either. Because of it? Yeah. You think? Roughly... 
when I was using diesel it was about 150 a week. Now to charge the car is about 35. Now I get 460 out of a full charge, like kilometres. How smug are you today? I'm very happy. Yeah. Evelyn O'Rourke reporting for Today with Claire Byrne. And on the live line, Joe was hearing stories of people who take the diabetes and obesity drug Ozempic. It's been described as a miracle drug and it is prescribed now. It's prescribed primarily for diabetics. That's what it was developed for. But Ozempic, as it's called, um, is a word you're going to be hearing a lot more of. We've been hearing a lot of it in calls over the last few months, including Charlie. Charlie, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. Tell us your journey, as they say, with Ozempic. Uh, well, I've been on Ozempic now uh, since June last year mm-hmm. um, for um, uh, trying to control my uh, the difficulty I was having trying to lose weight. I've been uh, fairly active uh, prior to the pandemic and the yeah. lockdowns. And uh, due to the additional weight gain associated with uh, uh, with some uh, some medical issues, okay. I felt that it, it was very difficult for me with the level of activity I was having, Joe, uh, to try and reduce the, the weight. So um, I've been in consultation with my GP on a number of occasions regarding uh, the difficulty I was having. Okay. Uh, obviously, I've been I've been you know trying to keep active, work out, go to the gym uh, prior to the pandemic lockdowns and um, we uh, we discussed uh, Ozempic uh, when uh, when it was available just a little over a year ago in Ireland and I've been on it now uh, a year this month Joe. And how do you take it and when do you take it and what are the uh, effects? Okay well normally I take it it's, it's a pen that you uh, you pick up from your pharmacy you need a prescription to get it so okay. uh, it's not available over the counter uh, so you need you need a prescription to get it, and you uh, you get uh, a pen uh, which has four doses in it uh, that you take okay. one dose per week, and then you'd uh, you'd get your prescription refilled in for the next month. And what but, you jab it into your leg or your arm or your uh, tummy? Yeah, you, uh, it's I I jab it into my lower tummy. It's not really a jab; it's only a little a little small nick, you know. Okay. It, it's not not major, but um. Uh, and and you just alternate the spot from one week to the next, from one side okay. to the other. And side yeah. effects? Uh, side effects, uh, initially when I first started on it, I was getting a, a bit of an upset stomach, a um, mm. little bit of, little bit of uh, uh, diarrhea and stuff like that. But long-term side effects, I haven't experienced anything now that I've been on it a year, but but uh, if, if it, but Charlie, if it's one of its one of its effects, apparently is that it's is to it doesn't work for everybody. Is it suppresses your appetite? So if you eat more, if you're used to eating more than than other people, for example, um, if you eat more than hunger demands, would you not? Would you? What effect does does it make you sick? For example. Uh, well, I've never, I've never overread or anything like that, Joe. Okay. Um, but, but what I, what I would uh, find is that it, it kind of reduces my appetite, whereby um, I wouldn't necessarily have the same portion I used to have before okay. I was on Ozempic. Um, and like one of the other side effects you'd get 
uh, would be kind of uh, burps, lots of burping or, okay. or eggy burps. Uh, so what's, yeah, what's, you know. what's the, and it did work for you? Oh, yes. Yeah, it's working. It's working for me. I, I'm quite, um, uh, like, I'm quite happy um, uh, with the, uh, uh, the reduction in the um, uh, the weight that I've had, and yeah, and, uh, and obviously uh, it, it builds your confidence as well, Joe, okay. and uh, it enables you to be more mobile and and kind okay. of enjoy okay. life more. So it has a domino effect, which might be even beyond the chemical effect, so to speak. In other words, you put you in better form. Um, you say, well, I will have a go at a longer walk. You were getting fed up with your weight pre- prior to that. Um, so what's the problem now, Charlie? Uh, the difficulty now is it's kind of the um, uh, the demand the, the demand required because of the success of the product. Uh, the supply um, isn't keeping up with the demand that's required, and really the demand needs to be increased to accommodate the supply, Joe. Well, that's Charlie there. Then John called Joe. I'm 74 years of age. Um, I came to Ozempic through a trial four years ago. I got a call from Vincent saying, would you be interested in uh, a health gain, no health gain uh, trial? Mm. Um, for, and I said yes. And uh, two more calls. And then I found myself in Vincent's in the clinical trial area with a, with a really brilliant guy called uh, Corel LaRue, Professor Corel LaRue, right? Okay. And he ran a whole team of... Uh, of people that and my treatment included a gym for two years, okay. properly, you know, medically, uh, what you call it, supervised, supervised, okay, and um, a lot of you know a lot of extra exercise. And the short version is, I went from 19 stone and being I- immobile to under 15. I lost 16 percent of my weight. Wow! And more importantly, yes, I was I was no longer pre-diabetic, and the health gain was huge. And as I, I haven't heard other people, because I didn't want to uh, let the mm. phone get messed up with the radio reception. Um, but the, the, I mean, I'm able to get down on the on the floor and play with my grandkids. Couldn't have done that before. At one stage, I was so heavy that when I dropped something, I just went, I can't get down there to pick that up. And I'm not okay. kidding. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I'm fitter at 74 than I was at 50. And I can only say to you that I've gone with a zeal on this to some journalists and on one or two TV pe- people and indeed to um, one or two programmes on RTE where I'm asking, really, can we just get this out to the million obese people that there are in Ireland? Because there must be about, and this is a non-medical uh, opinion, there must be at least 25% mm-hmm. of those who could avail of this. And while you know people may say it's for diabetes, well, all I can tell you is my life has changed completely for the better, and at 74, I'm more active and more energy and more bumps than I had at 50, okay. and I was very overweight. And you put this, to, what did the Ozempic do for you? It took me down from 19 stone to 15 but stone. How, John, how did it do it? Oh, sorry, I take, I, I, just like somebody explained to you, I take an injection okay. once a week. And the, um, the effect and it has on you is? Uh, initially, it was a bit tough. You know, like, I mean, you're introducing something new to your body. So for the first month or two, you know, you had to get used to it. And after that, I've been flying ever since. I did the precursor drug to Ozempic. And in fact, they pay for Ozempic, which is 139 quid a year, something like that, a month, month, which I pay. 
because it's not on the DPS. And my real trust in this in this call to you and into everybody I've spoken to, including the IPHA, which is a huge organisation, is to try and get this pushed onto the DPS, the drugs payment scheme, because people like me, 100, 140 quid a know, month is an awful lot of dough. But I would do it, and my wife agreed we would do it, because the, the mental health... The mental health boost, you know, to being able to live like this is huge. And what, you did feel your appetite suppressed or is your appetite suppressed or you just don't like food? No. Um, Some people are lucky enough to say that they have no interest in food. Most are like me, whereby your appetite is suppressed, but it's a lifestyle change, Joe. You have to be sensible and, you know, recognise your satiety. And I didn't even know what that word was, your fullness. Uh, is brought on a lot quicker. Yeah, and okay. the trick is to recognise that and then to stop. I also had uh, dietary advice. Well, that's John there. Then Frida called Joe. Frida has diabetes. Yeah, but now last month uh, was the first month that it, it wasn't available. My pharmacy okay. didn't, uh, couldn't get it. But uh, first about the money. Uh, the minute you are uh, diagnosed as being diabetic, you go on long-term illness. Okay. And then the Ozempic is free. Okay. Also, uh, blood pressure tablets are free and cholesterol tablets are free. Okay. So, um, uh, but in in my case, uh, I I didn't really have a weight problem until COVID when I normally was very active and then for 15 months I watched mm-hmm. uh, Tilly with the dog and um, and I was doing portions as if I was a boat worker. So uh, the Ozempic just, in, in my case, um, my portions are smaller. So okay. I'm not putting any more on and my test results for my blood sugar are perfect all the time. And um, if I can't get the Ozempic anymore and I start eating uh, wrong things again, you know, that you have the liking for it or whatever, uh, it, it is the blood sugar that I would be worried about. But uh, as a diabetic, Frida, if you yes. don't get Ozempic, what effect does it have on your diabetes? I, um, I would go back to... Uh, not the best diet. Uh, I I would kind of uh, crave the wrong things, and then the blood sugar would go up with the the, the complications you can get from high blood sugar. Mm-hmm. But can but, you can you as a diabetic? Do you have more serious insofar as you know? Do you have more serious effects if you don't get Ozempic than somebody who's using it for weight loss? It strikes me that the diabetic would have more serious... Uh, oh, they would. They would, yeah. because high blood sugar, I mean, it works on everything. You know, you, you, you have diabetics that if they don't look after their blood sugar, uh, they have to amputate toes and feet and uh, the whole circulation mm-hmm. is gone. Eye uh, illnesses, uh, heart, it, it's... It takes over the whole body if they if they can't keep the sugar down. You know your kidneys will will, will fail uh, anyway. So the, the the that is the main thing mm-hmm. that um, with Ozempic it is easy 
to keep your um, your blood sugar at, at the, the, the right level. Never, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. uh, whenever yeah, I... Yeah, I'll let you go. I want to take a break in a sec. Anyway, Charlie, we'll come back yeah. to you and John. But Frida, what okay. do you think of the argument that diabetics, given the limited supply now of Zempic because of its popularity, yeah. that diabetics should be prioritised? I think so because uh, the people that are overweight, I think, uh, okay, it's bad for them as well. Mm. But a diabetic would have worse complications. Uh, that that is why they also pay for your heart, your cholesterol, uh, because um, the effect is far worse uh, with diabetes. Okay. And 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 a lot of people with diabetes are overweight anyway, and and that that's how it starts. So okay. on the other hand, it's then important also that people that are overweight keep their weight down so that they don't become diabetic. That's Frida on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on today with Claire Byrne, it was laundry part three. This time, everything you need to know about the tumble dryer with Agnes Boucher Hayes. Now it's time for the final part three of our do's and don'ts of laundry. So far, we've covered the temperature you should wash your clothes at, biological, non-bio powders as well, how to get rid of the dreaded stains from our favourite items of clothing. And today we're going to be talking about drying those clothes. Now I'm aware that the weather has been very good (laughs) this week, but some people do still use their uh, tumble dryer. Someone told me the other day about putting them in for 10 minutes before they go out on the line. That's to speed up the drying process, I assume. Oh, oh I, I actually haven't ever heard of that because I would imagine that if you've used, first thing you would do, like when you're using a tumble dryer, one of the things you do is you'd make sure you spin out the clothes. Um, but if it's, a, if, if it's a piece of clothing that you don't, you're not supposed to spin, uh, I wouldn't, I, I don't see the logic of putting it into the dryer before you put it out in the line. If you have a line and you have the ability to do it, I'd be putting it straight out into the line. Yeah, and maybe for, when they come in. for speed, you know. But and when they come in from the line, you might give them a tumble just to make sure they're dried fully because that's one of the things that can go wrong, Claire, is when people don't dry their clothes fully and they might have them a little bit damp going into presses and things in, into the, the closets when they're not dried fully. Mm-hmm. But yeah. No, you, now, you, you want to that. tell us about how to use your dryer properly in terms of making sure it's running efficiently. You have to do a few things. You can't just shove the clothes in and take them out again. No, well, there's three different types of dryer. There's a vented, a condenser and a heat pump. And most of the dryers that are being sold now are heat pump dryers. They're more efficient because they reuse the heat. They remove the water from the clothes, but the hot air is recirculated. So that's number one. It's got a cost benefit. But the other thing is that you need, there's three different parts to your washing machine, two or three depending on the type of model you have. So you would also have a heat exchanger that we neglect a lot, which is down on the bottom, usually of your um, your tumble dryer. And you would remove the outside of that. You'd open the little door and then you remove a vented part. And then behind the vented part, there's the heat exchanger. So lint and different and various bits and pieces can get stuck in that. So you just occasionally, it's not a big job, just take it out, run some water through it, make sure all the, the rubbers are cleaned and things like that and that you've removed all the 
lint and that will help the, the dryer as well as removing the lint uh, trap from the inside and uh, on, you know there might be a reservoir if you have a condenser dryer or a heat pump dryer you have a drawer that collects the water mm-hmm. so you need to empty that as well. Because it won't let you use it if, the, if that's full. It won't. It'll beep at you clear. It'll yes. beep at you it'll tell you no no you need to do this little job now. So remove the water if that's mm. the type of machine you have and take yeah. the fluff out. And take the fluff out but every now and again occasionally go down look at the thing at the bottom and on there's little there's usually little clips so just take that out and give it a wipe and give it a clean and that will help that will keep it running more efficiently and hopefully safer as well. Now a lot of people as energy prices started to increase over the last little while just mm. said I can't use that tumble dryer because it's too expensive. How expensive is it to run the tumble dryer? Again Claire, we've spoken about this before the efficiency level of tum- of any piece of equipment will change and vary so there's different uh, energy ratings so if you're buying if you're in a position where you're looking at buying one you know if you buy an A++ one that's going to be the most efficient. If you have a tumble dryer that's older, that won't be as efficient. Um, so they generally uh, r- work out at maybe about a t- two 260 to run depending on how much um, what wattage of energy you use per hour but you know about 2 euros 2 260 euros per hour but there are different uh, remember when you're buying your machine as well you can buy different drum sizes so buying an appropriate drum size for the size of your household is also uh, something to consider Okay and if you are using it is it important to if you can Fill it as much as you can. Yeah, with every, like everything. Yeah, I, I would, yes, not overfill it now, Claire, because remember, um, with your dryer, depending on what type of dryer and what capacity you have, so you can have a 7, 8, 9 or a larger. So if you think about it, a 7 kg capacity would take about, just to give you a visual, 35 T-shirts. Mm-hmm. Um, or, that's a lot. That's a lot. Or a double duvet. So I would fill it as much as possible. However... Just be careful and be aware of the fabrics that you're mixing in, you know, putting them in together. So, you know, I would you, there are generally different settings on some of the more modern dryers. So there's iron dry, extra dry. Um, there could be wool or a mixed, you know, so you just have to be you might have to look, do a little bit of looking and make sure that you're using the correct temperature for the type of fabric that you're using. You do not put wool. Now, some, some, some dryers say you can, but you would put that in at a very low temperature. It would not be at a high temperature. Agnes Boucher Hayes from Today with Clara Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.